the whistle. Second half, my three subs action from the Center Circle Studios. Just absolutely ecstatic that we've got terrific guests with us on the podcast today. And joining us is one of the original Memphis Rogues, maybe even the original Memphis Rogue. We say hello to our new friend, John Huska. John, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, great. Great to be in contact with my friends and everybody in Memphis, Tennessee. John, I guess I should probably get this straightened out. Are you the very first Memphis Rogue? And if you're not, who was? Um, I don't know. All I know, I was drafted and um, I remember coming down for uh, the introductions when uh, we arrived in Memphis and I was greeted other than other than uh, Glenn Campbell's son, Hal Downing. <laughs> I got off the plane. He said, how y'all hit your head with that ball? Don't let it hurt. And that was my introduction. I said, oh, boy, we got a long way to go. Yeah, we'll have to talk about Rudy Schiffer, too, along the way. I'm guessing Rudy probably wasn't too far behind. But before we get there, from from, from getting to Memphis and starting to play here, uh, where did your soccer journey begin? You know, Where'd you pick up the game? Where'd you fall in love with it? Well, um, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, my father was a family doctor in East Baltimore, which is a very ethnic area. Man graduated number one from Maryland Medical School, spoke six languages. My mother, she was the head of the nurse association at St. Joe Hospital and uh, really good parents, modest parents. My father had done everything he wanted, but he cared about the people. And uh, I love sports, playing in the neighborhood. We played all the sports. And, you know, you name it, with ball, baseball, foot, street football, and soccer. And I played for um, a small um Catholic school, St. Francis of Assisi, and I was playing basketball at a little St. Matthew's gym, and um, one of the coaches came in and recruited athletes and wanted to start a soccer team and compete with Little Flyer, which had three and four teams right down the street. They were a big school. So I said, yeah. <clears throat> and I started playing on the field, midfield, pullback, whatever, and one of the big guys that was playing goal got hurt. They put me in. I was in there ever since. And, um, you know, it was, um, it was, uh, we had a place called Simon Harris, which gave away sold seconds of uniforms. We got t-shirts and basically sweatpants and playing in cold, hard, rocky grounds and started playing that. And my true love was baseball. Um, you know, I played, um, uh, I did very well when I was in high school. The coach didn't start me my freshman year, and I just I got swayed by a friend of mine in East Baltimore to start playing soccer. Not two years later, that was my goal, was to hit a home run out for the Yankees, the Virtual Orioles on the ninth thing, and win and give my father the ball. I didn't find out two years later that he, they, the Yankees and all the teams were after drafting me, and he didn't tell them. He didn't get many of my games, unfortunately, because of his work <laughs> schedule, but... Um, you know, it uh, it kind of transpired. I put all my I put all my um, effort into soccer and uh, wanted to be a pro. Always knew since I was five years old, I wanted to be a pro. What position and, did you play in baseball, um, by the way? Where, where, where'd you Where'd you play on the diamond? I'm always curious to hear where goalkeepers play. Well, uh, I pitch, um, played a lot of shortstop, and then they put me a catcher for one game and. Um, I imitated, I imitated a guy named Kirk Blefford. He came to my house one time. My father traded him. 
and his wife and um I used to put my knee down on the ground, you know, and then we played best team in the league and I threw out three of the best runners right in a row. And I never played before. I pitched a no hitter the day before. And I really wanted to play baseball. I just loved it. And um, then I started playing soccer because goalkeeper, of course, he always said it was the biggest, heaviest guy on the field, but you had to be in the best shape. And and um, I just went from there. And it just, my high school coach, who's the winningest coach of all time, Mr. Karpovich, um, 19 MSA titles. He he wanted me to play goal, and I did. And I followed him, and he did the right thing. And then from there, my uh, senior year, I broke my jaw, and I had all these offers, and they all went away. And then two local teams, Loyola College and and University of Baltimore, became powerhouses. Um, UB didn't pursue me as much. Loyola and went to Loyola, and, and things went on from there. You know, John, in high school, and in, in, in we're going to get to Loyola in just a moment. I know that's where things really took off for you. Can you talk about the culture in in high school uh, of being a baseball star versus being a, a soccer star? I'm guessing back then maybe it wasn't quite as glamorous. Well, football wasn't a big thing here. You'd see some of it here, but baseball was, was to me, there's nothing more dramatic than hitting a home run, but um, baseball was it for me. And I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. I ate, slept, drank it. You know, I used to cry when the other boys' fathers were there. My father couldn't be there, and my father would live on the clippings. But, you know, I didn't realize all these – all these. Uh, when I played high school, didn't become um, a starter because, like I said, I was a freshman. A coach later on laughed. He said, why did you stop playing? And I never quit. I said, because you wouldn't blame me. He said, you were a freshman. I said, you put the best players on the team, coach. And, um, you know, that's what happened. And I love catching. It was fun catching. And, um, you know, if you can hit and catch, you got a pretty good shot of making the pros. Yeah. You know, so I just kind of stuck with it. But soccer as a goalkeeper gave me the the use of all my athletic ability. I could dunk with either hand, you know, as a basketball player, too. I love basketball and um, played with the inner city kids. I mean, I always wanted to play people better and older than me. You know, I just love playing. I mean, my mother never saw me except for dinner time. Then I went out and played basketball at nighttime. <laughs> you know, so it was one of the things I just, in the days when kids didn't have to be entertained with, you know, with the internet and games and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you played sports. That's what you did. Yeah. You know, and I had a healthy environment, great neighborhood. I mean, I couldn't walk down the street without every old man on a Saturday morning asked me who I was playing. Then I came home, I had to report to him. I'd write down on a baseball what, what I did that game. And <laughs> and it was always encouraging to have the whole neighborhood behind me. And then later on to come home, from the, to get drafted from the pros, number one, but to come home and see all the people that were just behind me, you know, small town boy from Baltimore, you know, and I was very proud of that. You know, I hear you saying nothing but just great things about your dad and, you know, the legacy he left and talking about your mom and everything. How'd they feel about you not being in the medical field? My father and mother never pushed me. You know, they wanted me, they exposed, my mother was very, um, dad was working all the time. My mother became a volunteer nurse when she had three. I was the youngest of three. I got two daughters, sister, two older sisters. But she spent a lot of time culturing us. She took us to, to plays and to, you know, to, uh, you know, expose us to music and guitar lessons and piano lessons and, you know, um, museums. I mean, she really did a job with that. And she was very protective, you know, of us. And, um, you know, it's one of those things. And and parents do make a big difference in a child's 
your child's future. And then now my course, my grandchildren, one of them is throwing an 85 mile an air fastball at 85 at, at 16 years old. You know, Jeez. Auburn has got him and you'll probably be in the pros before you know it. And the one right behind them, you know, so it runs in the family. You know, my great, great grandfather was a pro ball player and he died. He stayed at tuberculosis. Probably he said pneumonia back then, but TB and, um, my father went to Loyola College, high school. Well, it's called Loyola College, like Coward Hall was. But um, he used to take the streetcar. He had to take three of them. My grandfather was a little bit honored until he had grandchildren, and he couldn't play. He hit one over top of the, up of the school building, the tallest building on campus, and the coach wanted to play, but he couldn't because of his because of his, you know, his education and everything. So it definitely you have, you have to have the genes, but you got to have the juice for it as a player. here. Yeah. John Huska joining us on the podcast today. John, uh, talking about uh, growing up and, and making that transition from, from multi-sport athlete in high school and then going to Loyola College uh, in Baltimore uh, for a collegiate career. And that's when things just really, really took off. Uh, did things just click for you right away there? How, how long did it take for you to settle in uh, to, to that university and to, 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 to play at that level? Well, you know, um, I wanted to stay local. I wanted to stay local. And what happened was when I broke my jaw, I had a friend of mine, that older guy, used to pick me up and take me to, you know, I, it was a ride to, to high school. And and he got me in karate, and I got whacked a few times and realized that my broken jaw was never going to break again in that spot. It had to be somewhere else. So it refined my game. It brought me toughness and protected me. So my freshman year, I got to nod third game into the season against UB, which these guys are all great athletes. I mean, you have to know the Baltimore athletes are all, you know, from the ethnic neighborhoods and are all friends. And, and um, you know, it seemed like all the public school boys went to UB and the Catholic boys went to, went to Loyola. And they had a guy named six foot five, Dennis Oresco with hair. He looked like he was six, seven, Charlie Myers, like a middle linebacker. And these guys were all um, very fluently, I mean, talented guys. But I knew when the ball came up in the air that if I didn't dominate that area, they were just going to chew me up like the previous goalkeepers. That was what happened to Loyola. And um, from the get-go, I was knocking them out and everything. And it just changed my it just changed my whole demeanor and my 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 really my um, my game took off from there as a freshman. At what point did you know that you were on to something special at the university? Because you, you got you got personal accolades there, you got some team accolades there. Can you talk about like at what point did you know? Okay, you know what? This is a pretty good group of guys. We could be on a run here. Well, when we beat you the first game, we had beaten them in a while. The team had beaten them in a while, and I knew halfway in the season. In fact. There was a team called the Washington Diplomats and Dennis Violet, who became the coach of the wing. And he wanted to draft me later on when he went over there. Uh, he came and wanted to draft me as a freshman. I said, no, because my education was important. And, you know, back then, you know, the league was too shaky that I didn't want to lose a scholarship. Of course, I didn't know enough business acumen to think that, you know, they could pay for my scholarship. And then, um, and then my second year, I definitely knew, you know, and, uh, I, I, I knew. And then I made second team All American. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was one guy said, I don't know anybody who's better than John. I can't believe he's second team. And it's funny. We win the national championship the next year. I become, I come out of a mention or 13, but we won national championship. And, um, you know, it's just one of the things they develop. And my high school coach said, you know, kids, you know, I remember seeing a lot of kids and you probably see them too, that were in, in grade school 
high school and they were really top and they never got any better. They didn't work at their game. And he said, you say every level you have to improve. And that's the ones that make it with the endurance. And, you know, you just got your talent, but you got to work hard on it because it's a very small percentage of people that make the professional ranks. You know, you bring so it kind of, you know, took off from there. You bring up a good point, John, that being a physical goalkeeper, it's amazing how many players will back off of you when they see that you're not backing down. Well, I, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's sort of like playing street football and you run out for a pass and you see the car there till you back away. I wanted them to know that I was coming behind them and breathing. And I had a way of doing things that I could do. I, I never did the one-fisted punch and I always never wore gloves, but I would put my two hands together. We call it the elephant's knuckle, elephant's foot, and you'd hit the head, then the ball. And that really, you know, I used to catch everything I could, but when, you know, I'm six foot, but a lot of these guys are big. I'd have to get the ball before it came, but I hit them, then the ball, and got away with it. You know, and, um, you know, your knee protection and everything. And it was very difficult in Memphis because, you know, I was extremely proud of my high balls. It was always quick, but the, the field was smaller. And the balls used to come across really quick. And it all, I never quite adjusted to it, you know, to, to the smaller field. I always played better in the larger fields. You know, it can affect your confidence because these big guys coming in are the pros. I mean, they pull your shorts, they hit you from behind, they do everything, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's an adjustment, but, you know, I did it, and I'm proud of it. You know, I guess the proudest thing, I, you know, was um, at the Senior Bowl. I only played three games my senior year. I had mono, and I broke my hand. I was still selected. I started. A guy named Malcolm Allison, who became the head coach, shortest head coach in history, I guess. <laughs> At uh, Memphis, but he was well known around the world. Manchester and, City, um, right? He was the, he was a legend at Man City, right? He coached Rodney Marsh. Well, I didn't know who he was. He was a big yeah. guy, he looked like Jim Thorpe. And he yeah. said, "What do you want to do, young man?" I said, "Play in England. You have it." So he was going to apply to have me play in Memphis and bring me over to Manchester City. And um, and I was excited as hell because that was like being a quarterback in the NFL. You know, in the NFL, the goalkeepers in England. In fact, if you look at English soccer. The second division team has mostly English goalkeepers because of all the money they can't break the first teams in the first division. And I still think they're the best goalkeepers in the world. Behind them would be Germany because they're tactic, tactical um, excellence. But, but um, you know, and I never had any training in my life. I was an athlete and later on went to Crystal Palace to train there and really helped my game. But, but uh, that was my goal, and he was going to do it. In fact, my rookie year, I was voted ninth out of 30 goalkeepers and um, national team never ever even invited me to come out and he was going to bring me in and he guaranteed me he said we'll get your citizenship or dual whatever and give you a trick get you tried out with england wow. so that's back in 78 you know and i didn't have the career i wanted in memphis you know we had some coach changes and and confidence wise you're gonna have a coach behind you not envious of you and it was very difficult especially with a an expansion team and not to mention all these guys are great a lot of the older too, you know, and that's why they excelled in indoor because they had a smaller game yeah. and less time on the field and they could make an impact. That's why the Memphis Rogues are so tough indoor. Hey, John, before we talk about the time with the Rogues, I want to ask you about Crystal Palace <laughs> and you had some time to, to train with them. Was that, was that under Terry Venables? Yes, it was. When, and um, when was that on I, your timeline? Was that before uh, you got to the Rogues or during that time? What, no, that was after that? my, well, Malcolm 
In fact, Malcolm, Crystal Palace came over and played a friendly game, and Malcolm Allison stayed at my house because they had a Charlie Charlie Cook didn't care for Malcolm Allison because of things Charlie, that he had said about Charlie. But Malcolm was very intelligent, and he stayed at my house, and we, you know, we talked all night. Um, uh, Malcolm <laughs> was known as a spender. He liked his fur coat and his champagne and cigars, and <laughs> he liked some of the young Southern cheerleaders, too. But, you know, we... Uh, we talked all night, and um, he, he he had told me that he had signed five players, and the team had reneged on him, and they fired him, and he used his reputation because he had quite a reputation. The league was going down. He was trying to stimulate some interest. But, um, you know, at 2020, being hindsight, I should have gone to England. I was loyal. I should have just gone with him, you know, and, and done that. And I'd probably be living in England today, to be honest with you. But um, he uh, – he really he meant a lot to me. Um, they wanted to draft me. Number, uh, Dave Clemens of uh, New Colorado wanted to draft me number one, and then Dennis Violet wanted to draft, draft me number two at New England because he had moved from Washington. And they they recognized I was talking to Malcolm, and I felt like I had a mentor and somebody that believed in me. And um, and it kind of just turned out the way it did. But you know, I had a great time in Memphis. I really did. Where was where were the Rogues in the draft? Where did you end up getting drafted? I was a six-pick first goalkeeper drafted. Like I said, I've been one or two, but because of Malcolm and the guys kind of moved aside and let him have the pick. So that's what it happened. I was the first goalkeeper drafted in the country. Okay. So you get in, you get into Memphis. John Husk is with us on the podcast. So, so you get into Memphis and you come from the college scene and you go from playing with guys that are about your age or slightly older to what looks like a team assembled full of a lot of older older veterans. Can you talk about the culture of the team when you got here and, and what your thoughts were when you first got here? Did you have any regrets right off the bat? I mean, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but how did things look at the time? No, I mean, you know, I, um, you know, a lot of will test you, as I was warned, um, how they treated Americans over here, because there was a token thing where you had to have at least four North Americans on the field, and if you were in Canada, you would be Canadian, but um, they would test you, and, and and before Tony Burns came, who was a great guy and really helped my career, um, you know, I got to play preseason with him, and Bobby Thompson, and guys like that, and Jimmy Husband, and um, they were all good to me, and they saw I could play, and they and they knew I was young. I didn't realize how young I was, and I look back now. God, I was 21 years old, but wow. you know it was it was it was incredible. And then I really became friends with uh, uh, with Tony Field when he came in from um, New York Cosmo, and he he mentored me. He would give me some you know political advice because I had a tendency to just be honest all the time, even in interviews. And he was he just wanted me to be cautious and. He, in fact, I talked to Tony last week. I had lost his number because of my phone, but you know he's doing well. So um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was interesting, you know. And Eddie McCready took me on like a son. In fact, I talked to Eddie last week too. I got it from Hal Downing, and and Eddie's doing very well. He's turned his life around, and um, you know, as far as he's living up in Tennessee, he's got a farm with his new wife and everything like that. So. Some of the guys have passed away, and I'm sorry to hear about John Faulkner, and I know that Bobby Thompson had passed away as well. Yeah. You know, so, um, and David Stride. Some great guys, though. They were always good. They are always good to me. They protected me. 
Yeah, John Huska is with us on the podcast today. John, you mentioned earlier on that the Liberty Bowl pitch was narrow as could be. In fact, I think some had said like 57 or 58 yards wide on what a typical minimum would be, about 70 yards. Uh, early right. on, you guys picked up maybe like, I think, one win early in the season, but it seemed like the width of that pitch or lack thereof helped you guys in what could be known as the biggest soccer match in our city's history. Well, a few weeks before, well, not even a week before, we played in Oakland, and Tony got hurt, his knee got hurt, and I came in. Uh, I'm not sure if he was really hurt. He later on said to me, it's your time. He's had his time, and I think he bowed out to give me a chance to play. He was advertised to be as the best American goalkeeper. He's made fun of French Shep Messing and all those guys. But <laughs> um, we played in a uh, – I came in the second half or whatever it was, and we went to a shootout and we lost. Um, we didn't make one, and I stopped most of them, but we didn't make one. And then we came back and played against Dallas. And it was ironic because uh, Al, I'm trying to think of his last name, he was the head coach at Dallas, and he was on the Olympic team. Um, and he, you know, I I played for him, but we beat Dallas 3-1 with Kyle Rowe. And Kyle Rowe's a great guy, too, by the way. And he's living and, in Memphis. Um, he's living in Memphis still, by the way. Yeah, I understand that. I remember when I was playing the All Star game up in Buffalo and indoor the MISL. Um, we went and had dinner together. Yeah, I knew he's involved in athletes in action. I don't know where he's been doing since, but he's a he's a gem of a guy. He really is. A really great athlete and just a very nice man. So um, yeah. So anyway, we played Dallas, and here I am only playing three games my senior year, and I find myself playing against uh, the New York Cosmos at home. And I know the pitch had a, the, the width had an advantage for us. And plus we had some tough guys, so we had to play our game and I just didn't know any better. You know, I just went out and played and I'm like, I can play, you know, here I am college. I can play with these guys. And it ended up being a really um, big night for Memphis, you know, and probably the biggest win in the history of a lot of sports because we were an expansion team and, you know, had some great players on the team, and um, it was uh, it was quite an experience. It was something I'll never forget. In fact, my parents never got to see many games, and it came across the board here. All-American, former number one draft pick, all that stuff. Loyola just shut out the New York Cosmos. And my mother, who, my father was a very calm man, had a tear in his eye. And my mother said, you should never doubt that boy. And he was worried to death that I was going to get trounced and my, you know, my confidence would be gone. So it really was a special night. And there's a, there's a great photo uh, of you racing and just beating Giorgio Canalia to the ball. And, of course, Giorgio, you know, he treated that league like it was shooting fish in a barrel. But, you know, you guys had a, had a, had a plan that night. Who who kind of shadowed him the whole night? Was that Faulkner that just kind of wouldn't let yeah, him out of his sight? It was Faulkner. It was Faulkner. And we had to beat him to the ball before the ball came in. He was extremely strong. And uh, it was ironic after the game, Georgia came up and kissed me. You know, I remember stopping him on a one-on-one. And um, I should have – I'm not big on taking people's clothes and shirts, but I should have gotten his jersey because I know he had a major heart attack a few years back. And um, he was just a nice guy. He's just a warrior. He had that with Pele because he wanted to be the king. He had an ego. And he was like the leading scorer in Italy for Lazio, whoever he played for. And, and Giorgio had an ego, but he just, that's what you want in a goal scorer. And he, uh, 
he was he was dynamic around that goal. I mean, he's extremely strong. I you heard, know, and um, we stifled him. I heard that uh, Beckenbauer wussed out of the match. He didn't like the pitch, and he came up with some sort of phantom injury, and that's why he didn't play before the game. Any, any know anything about that? No, I don't know why he didn't. Uh, I figured because he was playing against an expansive team or whatever, he thought it was an easy win, but he was known to be moody. You know, he's done it all, and when he wanted to play, he played. When he didn't want to play, he didn't play. And only moments I keep thinking of is, is Phil Holder kicking on a Carlos Alberto and Carlos Alberto <laughs> kicking Phil between the legs and getting kicked out during you know, the game. Carlos played with Pele, of course, at Santos and Brazil. And, um, you know, they, but even so on their bench, I mean, they had a strong team, you know, but that pitch, I, I'm convinced that field really kept them from sweeping the ball across the field. They just didn't have the, you know, we closed it down quick because of our, because of our uh, defenders. What do you remember about the last 30 minutes or so of that match? Because I know when Carlos Alberto got the red card, they were down to 10 men, but I, I was at that game, but it was so long, and I, and, and I was—I think I was like maybe seven at the time. But I just remember they seemed to start moving a bit faster with a little more room to work with. Do you recall it that way, or did you sense any urgency from them? I just, yeah, I sense urgency. I, I think they used to play around the ball, and I think we just held our own. But I just don't. You know, it's funny. I don't remember a lot. I just remember Flurry in front of the goal where I had to save one and put one to the left. I think it might have been on from Gary Etherton or Ricky Davis or somebody. But uh, I don't remember too much, to be honest. And then a one-on-one with Georgia outside the box on the right. And uh, it's all blur. You know, to be honest with you, it's a blur. The crowd was so loud and people could sense. It was like the miracle with the hockey, U.S. hockey Olympic team. It, it, it's, I think... You, you just you, you just start to get in that eighth gear, you know, and you just feel it. You feel it, and then you watch the clock, and then before you know it, 15 minutes more are gone, and it's like, wow, we, we might win this game, you know, and we did. And it was just, for me, it was just overwhelming. I, you know, I just, you know, I just couldn't believe I was there. It was pretty incredible. A, a huge accomplishment. And then Tony Field, Tony Field, of course, scored the winning goal. Yes, a huge accomplishment for you, but a, a huge accomplishment for the team because Tony was the MVP of the Cosmos the previous year, right? So, I mean, how, I, could it have been any sweeter for him on a personal and professional level? Well, yeah, they brought in – I'm trying to think of a guy's name that will come to me, but they brought in this guy, and Tony went and said, look, I love this is what I love about Tony. He said, I'm not going to sit. I mean, if I'm not going to play, then get you know trade me, and that's what happened. You know, and um, but Tony Tony was not the most talented player. He'd be the first one to tell you on the team, but he's, he was a hard worker, and they voted him the most valuable player on the Cosmos. I mean, Tony worked his butt off. He was a hard, hard worker, you know, and he comes from a very tough background in Halifax, and he played first division not that long, two years, but he played first division, and he was a hard, hard worker, you know, and – he was very demanding, and I loved about him because I was intense in practice too. He, he just even on the small side of games, he was intense, you know. And he wanted to be the best, and it was really a beautiful thing. And I got a picture of that, the front page here, here at my house on the commercial appeal with um, with Tony and his son Andy Andrew, Anthony. Um, you know, after he after the game, he scored a winning goal. 
you know, so it was pretty cool. Bob Rame, who did the radio back then and, and, is, and is still knocking around the city today, re- recalled last year on this podcast that you had a terrific quote after the match. He said that uh, when asked in the locker room about the match, you said that the Cosmos have it here and you were rubbing your fingers together like money. And then you said, but we have it here. And you started pounding your chest, your heart. Right. Right. I do recall that. And I look back at things I said, I was surprised. I, at my age, I was able to say some things, but yeah, I meant it. And I just think we just wanted that much. You got to look at us. We were another game on the schedule, you know, and, um, you know, and we, we ended up, you know, beating the best team around one of one of the best teams in the world. You know, but they, the problem was with a team like that, they were all in for themselves and they had their high contracts and you can have all the players you want with all the background you want, but if you don't have the chemistry, and they could be people just on pure talent, but you know, it's just, um, it was a great night in Memphis. Tremendous night. John, generally speaking, and I know you had three seasons here and you include indoor as well, but when you played outdoor, how god awful was it to play on the AstroTurf of the 70s? Well, as a goalkeeper, um, I hated, I, I, I hated, it just wasn't the pure game. You know, like for a goalkeeper, especially if it's wet, the ball skimps. I mean, it moves relatively a lot faster. I mean, Gordon Banks, who came over here and played with one eye, the best goalkeeper in the world, had lost an accident, led the league, and then he played the Cosmos in New York and lost 8 2. And most of it was because of the ball skimping. Um, the only thing great for it's drop kicking. You should get a pure bounce. But like playing in Detroit and Seattle, I mean, they're big fields. They're not going to kick the ball. The ball's lot, not as light as it is today. It can really kick it. And, um, you know, the AstroTurf was just hard on the body. I mean, it, it, you know, and, and the Memphis Rogues almost like it because it was that finely cut Bermuda grass, especially when it was 105 degrees out there. But, you know, it, it, it just, uh, the turf is not a true, you can't play, a, you can't play, you can't play, um, true pure professional soccer on, on, on turf. I mean, you, you just can't. While while that was rough, uh, can you can you share a little bit about what it was like to be here off the field? We've heard some stories from Rudy Schiffer and from from Hal Downing that you guys played as hard off the pitch sometimes as you did on it. Well, I was not much. I didn't drink, and and I'm not knocking the guys. You know, relieve the pressure to young guys, and they all went out and had a good time all the time, and. You know, I had a girlfriend at the time who later became my wife and now ex-wife. But but uh, I just believed in, you know, taking care of my body. And um, that's just the way they were, you know. And in England, it's a natural thing to drink beer. You know, I mean, I witnessed games for us where they drank the day of the game, you know. In fact, we went to San Diego, and it was a long night the night before. And um, I had visions of Alan Burchill singing Walking a Dog in a nightclub, taking over the band. It was funny as hell. And the next day we came out and we scored like three goals on San Diego. Ended up losing four to three on four penalty kicks. Oh, jeez. We played one of the best games we had. But they'd look at it as uh, a relax. And they don't look at it as alcohol. They look at it as juice, you know. And and, and, and that's just the English culture. They, the, you know, the British culture is that way. And, um, you know, but... 
these guys were at the highlight of the career. They come to America. Women treated them like the Beatles because of their accents. And it was uh, it was quite a ride, let me tell you. We had the boosters, and that was a trip, too. We used to say we were like um, Flapshot, you know, and Kevin Card. I know Kevin's no longer with us, and um, but Kevin Card was part of it. Of course, Rudy Schiffer. So we had... We had some fun. The front office people were all involved. I mean, it was a it was a great experience. Yeah. Hey, and, and can you talk a little bit more about the Rogues Gallery? You 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 sound like you remember them fondly. The the I guess there were supporters, and then the, I guess there were the super supporters known as the Rogues Gallery. Well, I got to tell you, there's some mostly good experiences, a few bad ones. Um, I'm not. I can't blame them on the Rogues Gallery because they're real supportive, but. One night we played, we, we we had lost, we beat the Cosmos and we played Fort Lauderdale. We lost Fort Lauderdale in overtime and I played very well, one of the best games I ever played in my career. And and I woke up the next day and I had a Monte Carlo and I thought I was something back then, but I, all the tires were split and all the, all the glass in my windows and my mirrors were all broken. <laughs> so I guess it was sort of like being in, um, uh, what was the show with Patrick Swayze, you know, Roadhouse when he comes yeah. out in his car is all messed up. It didn't bother me at all. Yeah. You know, it was just one of the things. Yeah. I mean, I was still alive, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of memories will pop up as we're talking. And, you know, we just, uh, I can remember I was talking to Tony about this last week when we had come home, we had lost to Oakland and we had come home to play Dallas, of course, which we won. And Rudy had designated Tony Field to come off the airplane. The whole band and everybody was there waiting for us. He called it Mighty Python's Flying Circus, and Tony would play that song. Because Tony had to lead every, hey, we're 0-8, but are we wonderful? And all that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, jeez. And I was really I was really glad when we got that first win for Eddie McCready, because Eddie put his heart and soul in everything. You yeah. know, he really tried so hard. He wanted us to be the best. Yeah, I know the Rogues were here for three seasons. What ha- were you injured in 1980? I-, I don't recall why we saw more of Bob Stetler than John Huska that year. Well, I had lost my confidence, um, and I'll say it straight up. I when Eddie was fired, which I think was wrong, but Eddie was fired, and we were in San Diego, and Charlie Cook called me into the room and said, "Look, I don't like you. I don't like the I don't like the uh, attention you get from the newspapers and all this stuff." And this and that. And I said, Charlie, I'm going to do whatever I can to prove you wrong. And he said some nice things later on, but he was really hard on me. And I just didn't feel like he had my back. And there was rumors that he did Eddie wrong as well. You know, Eddie brought him over from Chelsea. But, um, you know, it just didn't feel when you're not wanted. Uh, I should have been young. I'm mature enough to go in and he has to be traded, you know, to team like New England or somebody like that. And um, it just, my confidence just went to hell. The indoor game really was great for me, you know, at the time. And, um, yeah, that's really crazy, well. John. That's crazy because you guys were like a 15 minute mini game away from winning the NASL indoor championship. And you had a hell of an indoor season before the outdoor yeah. season. Yeah. What had a shutout and, and won the goals against average and everything. And it was, um, you know, my reflexes, everything were great. The high balls were, I was struggling with because of the field and loss of confidence, you know, and every time I'm afraid to make a mistake, which you can't be as a goalkeeper. Yeah. And, um, I just, it was a period of time that I wish I was out of there, but I was, I was, uh, engaged and, you know, and I just didn't have the maturity to make the move, but you know, it's one of the things and we didn't have the MOS to fall on like they do now. And like I said, I would have gone back to England, yeah. but, um, yeah, so it was um it was a it was a good ride though, you know. 
I mean, I got places like I used to go to Old Buttons on Southern Avenue and have fried chicken over there, Mr. Wiggins. I we used to go out to his little ranch and everything, and um, France St. Lot and all the guys. And you've heard that story about France a lot myself and the in the uh, locker room and a girl reporter came in and pranced a lot. I was standing naked and, and, um, it, you know, I mean, there's some funny stuff that used to happen. I mean, these guys, these English guys were always playing pranks all the time. I mean, Phil Bill was the worst. He had this mask he used to wear on the road. And this old man West with some teeth missing and a couple of hairs on his head. And he would walk through with a robe, uh, a, a robe and a cane, and, and limp along, and everybody would be frightened to death of him. And he'd scare all the the maids. And uh, it, it, we, we, Phil Bill was the top player in England. He was injured when he came over here. He played for, um, let me see, he played Tottenham, and um, let me see who played for. He played for Tottenham, and we had um, Alan Burchell played for Arsenal. And they were top players. In fact, Alan, Alan Burchill went back and played in England uh, when he left here. But um, they were all great guys. You know, just you got to remember, these guys played since they were schoolboy. I mean, you got selected. You, had, you didn't get an education. You went from there. If you didn't make it by the time you were 20, 21, you'd never make first division. And these guys had long careers. But a lot of them had no education, so they ended up staying in soccer and doing champs and stuff like that over here where they could make money. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's what happened with a lot of them. But. Yeah, we used to do uh, commercials like for a local bank and and for the apartments we were staying at, and that was a lot of fun too. So, and you know, the players were dating the girls in the front of the office of the apartments. I mean, it was just slapped <laughs> all over. <laughs> I, I guess it's perks of the job. I guess fringe benefits or something like that, John. Oh yeah. well, you wouldn't with social media today. You'd be destroyed. Oh yeah. But back then, it was just young guys having fun. You know. That's yeah, all. Just on the down low. John Huska joining us on the podcast. Uh, John, I know uh, the Rogues left here in 1980, but you still had gas in the tank and you moved your you, you moved to indoor for 1981, right? It, it, or was it 82? Well, what happened was what happened was I got my mind back together and and Al Miller, who I tried to remember his name earlier with the Olympic team, he had, he became the coach at Calvary. And I had played very well and he knew it. But the but the league was struggling, and and what happened was we played some indoor games, and uh, with Calgary, and he brought in a goalkeeper from Germany from the national team, and he came to talk to me, and I was quite upset. He said, "John, he's a national team goalkeeper." I said, "It doesn't matter." I said, "I'm playing very well." He said, "John, the league's going to fold." He said, "You can be the best goalkeeper." indoor if you go indoor in the league because this league is coming up and that's what happened and he went to cleveland and he and he and he and he bought my rights and i i moved to cleveland okay but so the, that's kind of how it happened the force that yeah. who who was running the force at that time at the time the furfies were in detroit right always get detroit and cleveland mixed up well we had the coach the the owners were named bart wolfstein okay and his son scott yeah the wolfsteins ran it and we played at the Richfield Coliseum, which was built to be between Cleveland and Akron, but it never worked out the way they wanted geographically to draw the people. It's since been torn down, I heard. But, but um, yeah, that's what happened. And moved to Cleveland. Boy, that was weather. Holy smokes. Yeah. Never seen so much snow in my life. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, you know, it was, it was a good time. But, again, we had a lot of superstars, and everybody worried about the contract and not playing for the team, and I ended up blowing up there. and. Unfortunately, Eddie had to pay the price for that too. You know, 
Yeah. A lot of players were signed by the ownership, not by the coach, you know? Yeah. He didn't have a control of that. And that, so, that's, um, ne- that's never an easy political water to maneuver either. When the, co- when the coach doesn't have the, the decision on the player personnel, that's got to be tricky. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, it's a lot of things happen. You know, you think back. I mean, I didn't have a long career that I wanted, but a lot of people can't say they had a career like that. And I'm, I'm proud that there's some big things that I've been able to accomplish Consider the situation, you know, and very proud of that. And um, you can't take that away. And uh, my biggest thing was I still have the things by Malcolm Allison back going to England. And I was well ahead of time because it wasn't until the 90s, I don't believe, the first goalkeepers went there. But, uh, boy, that would have been fun. That would been the ultimate for me. I'd be like dying going to heaven playing playing over in England. You know, and um, those green grasses are so beautiful. You talk about AstroTurf, look at those pitches they have. Oh, it's like, now it's, it's like, like a, a putting green, isn't it? A, yeah. When you did play, it sounds like you had good times and, and, and you got some things done and, and some experiences that you probably wouldn't trade anybody for. Well, you know, as we as I sit here, um, I'm getting ready to move to Florida, by the way, July or August, and I plan on getting married. Um, Congratulations. Nice, beautiful, old girl from the Philippines. She's 30. <laughs> oh, wow. But, now, actually, I look really. I'm in I'm in great shape. I've had nine surgeries in two and a half years, two hip replacements, four um, uh, multiple occasions. I got four plates in my neck, and um, almost died twice on the table. Uh, actually, three times. And God's been good to me, and um, and uh, everything else is doing well. I had some clotting problems, had lung surgery, you name it. Yeah, she's an old spirit. I'm a young spirit, and. And and I still go out. And the girls tell me, look, they think I'm in my 40s. They die when I tell my age. So I've been, God's been good to me because of genes and my family. But um, I plan on moving to Florida. I want to be close to family. I got two daughters in South Carolina with eight grandkids between them, and my sisters live in Florida. And um, with the weather and and all this, and one thing I'm planning on doing. And one of my best friends was the general manager and coach of the Baltimore Blast. Is now up in Har- um uh, what is the hell was the name of it? I always think of it, not Hannaford, uh, PA. And he, I've talked to him, and I want to make a comeback. My reflexes are as fast as ever, if not faster. I just can't get my body in shape and um, and get one game from him. If not, go to a team like Orlando has the worst goalkeeping average, and I want to come back in and put on a few shows and, and just got to get it out of my system. So I will do it. It's oh. just going to take about a year. The season's already canceled, and I do want to do it. So, you keep your podcast open, brother. I'm ready to do it. I'll try. And you know what? Maybe I'll be on Oprah. <laughs> I, I tell you what, you 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 try not to screw your body up. I'll try not to screw this podcast up, and let's meet again when this happens. Uh, I I I hey, listen, I'm of the belief you got to use your body and you got to keep playing ball till you can't anymore because it's it's it, it's a it's a soccer's a global game, but it's a small family and losing that kinsmanship and and being out there and making new friends and and keeping in touch with friends is one of the unique things that soccer has that a lot of sports would just only wish they could have. Well, there's two things to answer your question earlier that I have two, I have a lot of trophies and plaques and all that stuff here and pictures, but I have one that's from my grade school when I went back and they said for your Christian attitude and, 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 you know, 
how you presented yourself to the children of St. Francis was very important to me. And I got one here, the most popular player in Memphis. And the reason for that is, and I don't understand athletes today. They used to, you know, Pele used to sign autographs after the game, you know, like forever and ever. And Tony Field told me one time he was over here and Tony says, I'm a little guy from England. And he had a white jacket, leather jacket on. And Tony says, I love that jacket. He said, you love that jacket, Tony? And six months later, you brought Tony back a white leather jacket. And that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, we got overexposed. I mean, they used to try to send us to birthday parties and everything. But I tried to make every clinic, every showing I could. And what happened was the kids would come and cheer for me at the game, you know, and and it was because um, I know that kid could make a difference on his life if somebody paid him time. And you don't know what kind of situation he had at home. Right. You know, he may not have a father image or whatever or, not, or parents at all. And you touch somebody and he says, I want to be like that. And an image, if you call it an image, I just call it being well-raised, which I thank my parents for. But, you know, those things stick out in my mind. I mean, those long trips that we used to do in those clinics and doubles uh, when it was hot. I mean, birthday poly, bowling alleys, you name it, um, store openings. I mean, banks, you know, and a lot of European players wouldn't answer the phone where they probably had enough of it. I don't know, but I just looked at it as an opportunity to meet all these kids and these parents, and they came and rooted for me. We didn't have huge crowds. I mean, I think we averaged about 8,000, 9,000 people, but we always had an indoor was extremely loud, you know, with, with the crowd and the fans and everything like that, so... It was quite it. And one thing, getting back to college, I got to tell you, I'm most proud of, and they haven't done anything about it. I still own the single season saves record of 196 saves in a season and 476 over three years and three games have the most wins ever. Yet there's never been anything said about it. And today, the way they play the game, they don't shoot the ball. I mean, I go to college games and have one save, a half, sometimes one save a game and 10 shots. I mean, we we played the attack English style, and we shot and shot and shot like basketball, never up, never in. And and um, but I'm most proud of that, you know, with the saves record because, you know, the wherewithal that you know you could have all these some of these guys have shutout records, but they would average one save, no saves a game, you know. And now it's just a it's a completely changed game. It's called possession. Well, you can't score if you don't shoot the ball. Yeah. You know, and the ball is much lighter. I mean, you see the ball bending now. Pele was the only one that could do that. Now everybody can. But, you know, the Baltimore Colts won the draft me. And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, five hits a game. And what do I do after I date all the cheerleaders? They thought that was funny as hell. <laughs> but uh, I went to school with Dianitis Jr., you know, and he used to come to all my games, and he owns the memorabilia of the Colts and everything. I haven't talked to him while I was supposed to get together for lunch. But a lot of good people in Baltimore. It's a small town. You know, it's not like Philadelphia. It's not like um, New York. Um, unfortunately, you know, the virus is very bad here with deaths and everything. And then, of course, the crime rate is we're, we're the number one in the country as far as per capita, as far as murders. It's terrible. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pack my bag south, and it's a lot easier on my body. And and I plan on coming to Memphis. I really do. I plan on coming to see you guys. We'll get together again. No, that'd be great, John. And and just to touch real quickly before we go on, um, you were talking about all the clinics that you hit here with the rogues and the parties, the personal appearances and stuff. Uh, just know whatever your stats were, whatever your cumulative numbers are, uh, just know that I am part of 
that legacy that you guys left behind because without you guys being here and having been introduced to the sport, I and probably tens of thousands of other folks would not have fallen in love with the game, would not have played the game, would not have had kids and teaching them the game. So really, uh, just in the three years you guys were here, you helped spawn uh, a generation. And now there's, there's amateur leagues out here all over the place. There are thousands and thousands of amateur players out playing every night and their kids, thousands and thousands of folks. So uh, I hope that you never forget how much you guys meant to us, even just in those three years. Oh, no, I don't. And um, there's a new professional team there, right? Yes, Memphis 901 FC in the uh, in the uh, USL Championship Division. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fun to watch. You think maybe they'll give me a game? You know, Tim Howard's in goal at age 41. And what are you, like 47, John? You sound really young. You're a young <laughs> spirit, man. <laughs> Try sixty, try sixty-four, May, brother. Oh my goodness! Well, well, uh, well. Happy birthday, then, uh, John. What's what? What day? You know what? I do that hand slapping game with boxers, and I still beat them. At the end, I slap them in the face. Telling you, I'm, I, it's, it's amazing. My reflexes. I'll know when they go, but they're not. In I, fact, I'm quicker, and then you, of course, you get smarter. You hope. I would love to play. There's nothing. Hey, listen, I'm a die on the field. It's like Braveheart in the movie says, every man dies, but not every man lives. That's right. And you got to live your life. And that's something I feel like, I still feel like there's a, there's a void to be filled there. And maybe you go play a game or two in England. Who knows? I can remember so many things and going so many places. And there's so many stories. And I can think of Tulsa. Talk about turf. We had, in the locker rooms, they had big airplane fans in there. It was so hot. And the field must have been 120. You know, and... No air conditioned rooms. I mean, you got you got played at Wrigley Park, and when it, and you were in the dugouts where the famous baseball players were. I'm sure Babe Ruth hung his hat there, and creeping water down the walls, and and you know so many places. We got kicked out of Minnesota because the guys were playing cards, and and started having water fights and opened up the rooms. And Casey and the Sunshine Band were there. I remember that. The guy kept knocking on the door saying, "Hey, man, we're Casey. They're gonna blame us." I said, "The hell with you." I said, "You bring back Casey, and we'll quit." Yeah. Next day, apologize. It was pretty funny. I mean, there's so many stories. You know, we hope. Uh, hopefully, I'll make my way down to Memphis. When I do, you'll certainly know her through Hal. And and Hal's been a great guy. Uh, Glenn Campbell, you should come back and get a guitar. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I never made big, that big smile on face. I said, oh, boy, is it going to be a long I can remember staying at the Ramada Hotel on Lamar Avenue across from the library. Yeah, yeah, the Ramada <laughs> Hotel. And we got to get Hal to sing Rhinestone Cowboy. That that would make everything complete. Well, I can remember staying at the hotel with Fran Lemons, who got who got arrested for going and having to go to the bathroom outside. And and I'm a little boy from all my my mother. I had to check with her, and she said, "Where are you going? I'm going to the library." Well, they took me across the street to the library. It was a, a topless place. Oh gosh! <laughs> and you know. Oh my God! There's so many stories, but nothing beats that apple that that peach cobbler, Mister Wiggins, on Southern Avenue, and, and his buttons. His son owns the restaurants. I don't know if they're still in business. With food like that, they de- they 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 ought to still be in business. John, it's been an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you so much, and please let's let's keep in touch, and would would love to know when you're making your way this way. But also, just please keep us up to date on how the uh, training is coming for for a comeback here. It's it's it sounds like it's exciting and. We all got to have something that gets us all fired up, and I, I admire you for finding what brings you joy in pursuing it. Well, I found a nice woman, and um, I plan on having more kids. By the way, nobody named after me, so I got to have I got to peel the tree. You know, I got to have my own blood. I'll have that, and also um, 
you know, I got I got wonderful, you know, sisters and, and daughters and everything. I'm really pleased with the men they married. I've been through a lot. Trust me, they misdiagnosed me. I've had eleven concussion, misdiagnosed me with um with with bipolar, which is not it's got bipolar symptoms of uh, TBI. Yeah. Um I was gonna take it to court. I couldn't find a right lawyer, but good thing I didn't because the time wouldn't let me play, but I'm doing well and I miss all my people. God bless everybody in Memphis that have been nice to me and kind to me. And Memphis will always be in my heart. I just wish I could get back there sooner than yesterday. Well, we hope that you do. And in the meantime, good luck in, uh, in conceiving another child. So in the meantime, during your training and during your matches, please wear a cup for your uh, future child's sake. A cup? Uh, well, you know, can you find one to make one big enough? Uh, maybe check with Franz St. Lot. I don't know, John. Hey, 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 you know, I got to tell you something. I got a new name. Tony Field. Tony Field is the new Memphis Scrooge. Is he? We're going to get him on there if he's listening. I'm going to get that old Scrooge. I'll get him on there. He's honorary as hell, but he's funny. When he gets drinking and he gets mad, his nostrils get flared. You know? I used to call him Napoleon. He looked like Napoleon. He'd wear that double-breasted blue blazer. He looked like Napoleon. Just honor as hell. Oh, gosh. You know? But you got to have somebody. Well, listen, God bless you, man. And um, everybody in Memphis, I love you. And look forward to seeing you one day. We'll make a deal of it. Or next on My Three Subs, a soccer odyssey. Things are really ramping up. A lot of people have spring fever. They're ready to get out, and the housing market is looking great. I love soccer, but I also love helping people with Cry Like Realtors. 901-756-8900. You can go to my website, timvanhorn.com, and set up a search and find what you're looking for. Better yet, just call or text me, too, 901-262-5000. I have a couple of great listings I want to tell you about. I've got one in Arlington right now, a five-bedroom, beautiful home out in Wilson's Crossing, a short stroll over to the community pool. It's got a walking trail. It's got a lake as well. Check that out at Tim Van Horn. Com. I've also got a new listing that's about to go on the market. So, hey, listen carefully. It's between you and me. I've got a three-bedroom, two-bath that's in East Bartlett. It has the Arlington zip code, but it's technically in Bartlett. So you've got those great Bartlett schools, the great taxes there. Go to timvanhorn.com. You can check on featured listings later this week and see this little gem of a house. It's a great starter home. And by the way, I work with relocation companies as well. If you're moving in from out of town or if you're heading out of town, I can help you get to your next place, whether it's around the block or actually around the world, too. I just helped a young couple get their first home in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Yes, I'm licensed in Tennessee and in Mississippi. They've got their very first house. They'll be moving in very shortly. They couldn't be happier, and I love helping people enhance their life story. And that's a big moment for them, so we take great care to make sure all the paperwork looks good, you get a great price, and we can even turn you on to some terrific financing as well. 901-756-8900. Give me a call, 262-5000, or just go by my website, timvanhorn.com. This is my three subs. A soccer odyssey. And we have added time to the podcast. I had the best time talking with John. And we had maybe had one phone conversation before that. And then the next thing you know, you know, like 45 minutes, 50 minutes have have passed. And we talked about so much and and just really grateful to him. And thought it was kind of funny because Tony Field just kind of stays to himself in in Memphis. That's just, that's his choice. But John made it a point to call him out. So... (laughs) Tony, I just want to let you know I had nothing to do with that. 
If you'd love to come on the podcast, it would be an absolute honor to have you on. We've sure. had Carbon Yanni on. We've had, you know, now we've had John on. It would complete the trifecta. It would complete the trifecta. We'd love to hear about your goal against the Cosmos. We want to hear sure. about the final goal that you scored as well and, and be an MVP of the Cosmos the year before. So please come on. But again, I had nothing to do with that. Brody had nothing to do nope. with that. Nope. He, do- he, he doesn't have Huska's phone number, so he, he is totally blameless in this. But what a blast that was, and just just really grateful. Y'all had only talked once before that? Yeah. Because, I mean, it sounds like you two go way back. You know, it's just, he's just a good guy. I yeah. mean, and that's why he was so popular back in the day, is just he's he made himself so accessible. and Never turned down an appearance, huh? No. No, just always wanted to be uh, part of the community here. And, cool. you, know, you know, I know he doesn't live here anymore, but right. if, he, if he were to come back, I would love for him to come back during a 901 FC match yes. and have him do a guitar smash and yeah. get a picture. You know, him and Tim Howard yeah. together would be pretty awesome. That would be super cool. Talking yeah. about the classics together, man. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I would love to see, like, a Memphis Rogues like throwback game if you will uh just everybody who's still kicking it you know maybe around just wherever they are just get them back it's just to see the old faces the old team put the band back together if you will that'd be fun be good to get tony field down there yeah. Car- carbignani would Car- show up oh <laughs> carbignani would love it uh eddie mccready lives in tennessee he, he lives on the i think he lives way out in east tennessee but uh you know it, get he, him off the mountains there. Get, get him off the mountains get it get him get him in here i think people would love that especially chelsea fans because I mean, he's a legend sure. at chelsea but yeah that that would be fantastic but it all would have to to me would have to encompass starting the night over at the brass door that oh, would yeah. that, that that oh, would be yeah. my ideal night you got to get some fish and chips maybe a um Good old shepherd's pie. Gosh, you know what? I'm fiending right now. This was a bad idea, Tim. We did this before lunch. Yeah, we did. You know, this was... Because when we talk, start talking about Seamus and the brass door... Is it June 2nd yet? It needs to be. That's the tentative date or the, the go date of when the brass door is set to reopen. Now, that being said, reopen with the same great flavors that you expect, the same great beers and everything like that, but a little different look, a different flair. Seamus has kind of teased and hinted at the fact that there's been some reno going on or or something along those lines. And and that just intrigues me more, Seamus. How dare you? The brass door is not going to have a titanium door, is it? I, I don't I don't think I so. I hope the brass door is still the brass door. <laughs> I don't think so. The last time I drove by, it didn't look any different, the door, but uh, that's all I could see. So, you know, I hope, I hope, and I, no matter what, I know it's going to be fantastic in there because it's always gorgeous in there. The atmosphere is always just that cool, vibey brass door. You sit and have a pint with your friends. It's not loud. It's the, it's not real, you know, kind of boomy loud that you get in most pubs, but it's it's so worth it. Well, I love that when I go in, that they know I like Newcastle or something like that. And whoever's working the bar, it's like, hey, I've got this. This is kind of the closest thing to Newcastle. You want to give this a shot? Yeah. And it's like, why, yes, I do. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you, so, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, but so June 2nd and... 
as you said, there's some some changes coming in there in the way things maybe look, maybe some I updating. I don't know. That's what's so exciting. Like, I can't wait for June 2nd. I, more, more importantly, I want a n- nice, authentic shepherd's pie. <laughs> I'm feeding for that. But also, I want to know what it looks like inside because, again, we've been teased with this. Hey, we did some work here. so. And I know there's a couple of reasons why he's sort of holding off. One, because there's no soccer downtown right now. But secondly... We're in phase one of back to business in the county that we're living in, which means a lot of folks aren't going back to the office yet. And yeah. his clientele during the week is going to be a lot of those high-rise buildings downtown. I mean, so I it doesn't him. make sense for him to open right yeah. now. I don't blame him. But when he does, uh, I mean, it's game on. Oh, man. It's game on. Uh, any other any other thoughts here? Uh, shout out to, of course, uh, Podcave and uh, our, our good friends over there for yes. uh, being at such gracious hosts uh, throughout this entire pandemic. Um, you know, keeping everything running smoothly and everything like that. So it's it's been real fun uh, working with a host. If you want to get involved uh, with podcasts, of course, you could just go to uh, podcave.com and slash my, three slash subs. my three subs. And what do we have for you there? We got a couple free weeks for you. Three full weeks? No, 30 days. Oh, 30 full months. We have up, we have up the game. Holy smokes, podcast. And that includes the licensed music. It yeah. includes the episode planner, the hosting, the whole shebang. Podcave days, bro. Yeah, pod, pod, a big deal. Podcave.com slash my three subs. And, and I guess I want to send out a congratulations to, to Las Vegas Lights head coach Eric Winalda, who is going to start podcasting again. Yeah. We're not haters here. We, we no. The more, the merrier, because he's going to bring some special things to the table as well. And I'd love to hear, hear his rebuttal to the match. <laughs> I would too. You know, I, I, I love the fact that, you know, <laughs> We, we you know we've sent some love his way, and sure. you know the match went as it did, and I don't think that he hates us. So it's, it's I don't think he hates us. We haven't gotten hate mail from him, but I don't think he's happy with us. There's a difference. Yeah, you know, it could have gone his way. <laughs> he would have loved to have gone his way. You know, just chalk it up to home field advantage. You know, I mean, you bring the llamas, it didn't do you any yeah. good. But it, it, but in all seriousness, you know, he he was great when he had a radio show before. He was great on television. In fact, I saw the on the streaming on demand the Beckham USA debut when he played for Galaxy against Chelsea. You know, he was on that match with Tommy Smith. Enjoyed right. that. Uh, so he, he should be broadcasting. Okay. And, and glad glad he's on there. So congratulations. Without much further ado, uh, congratulations to Eric Winalda on that. Uh, check us out at My Three Subs Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. My Three Subs Soccer Pod on Instagram. And My Three Subs Podcast at gmail.com. As I'm struggling to make sure that the mask stays over the bridge of my nose, yeah. As uh, we're we're playing it safe here, and I, does that put the wraps on everything? Yeah. If you want to go back and listen to anything, especially that match that we just mentioned, go to my3subspodcast.com. Have a great week, everybody. Next week we're talking youth soccer right here on my three subs. There's the whistle. Thank you for listening. Check out more my three subs podcast, a soccer odyssey.